Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Montgomery. Don't show favoritism. And this one is particularly difficult because some kids fucking suck. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to remind you to go to adamandeve.com for a limited time only, and you can get 50% off just about any item. They have a huge, huge selection of adult toys from a huge selection of manufacturers. I mean, some of the most high-end stuff available out there. Stuff from Fleshlight, Liberator, Rocksoft, Lilo, Lubes from Pure and Wet, and Adam and Eve's own brand makes phenomenal, phenomenal products, including their condoms. Phenomenal condoms from Adam and Eve's own brand. So when you select your one item at 50% off, you'll also receive three free adult DVDs plus a free exclusive gift That's that clit bumper, guys. And to top it all off, they'll even throw in free shipping on the whole order. AdamandEve.com. Just go there and use the code word RISK at the checkout. That's R-I-S-K at AdamandEve.com. And now, here's a tiny little ragtime fella to sing you a song. Oh, mailing and shipping are very important, but going to the post office sure as shit ain't. That's why I love a certain little something called stamps. Dot com. You can buy and print your U.S. postage using your computer and your printer, too. We use stamps to come right here at risk and tell tales about butts and poo. That's right, and right now you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK! Now here's the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Seven Fisher behind me now, and we are calling today's episode Live from Philly 5. Holy shit! We have had so many great experiences, so many great stories have been shared in the times we've gone to the great city of Philadelphia. I always think of Philly as kind of being like New York's little bro. You know? People are kind of down to earth, raw and real. There's a lot of history there. I don't know. I just love Philly. And every time we go, it's an amazing show. We're going to play this entire set uninterrupted. And we're going to start with a comic book editor. His name is Tom Brennan, and he edits for, uh, I think it's Valiant Entertainment? Hold on a sec. Yes, I am holding in my hand a gorgeous comic book called Faith, about a young woman superhero. It's got a gazillion raves on the back cover. Tom is also involved in the show Electoral Dysfunction at the People's Improv Theater in New York City. Here he is now, Tom Brennan, with a story we call A Friend in Need. the spring of 1999 and I am just livid with my mother just furious with her alright pissed you know why because she is sending me to Spain during spring break with my high school class right <laughs> the fucking monster I won't call my mom a bitch in public but what a monster cause here's the thing She's not sending me to Spain just because she wants me to have like an amazing experience that only privileged white kids get to have to see the world and understand themselves. Uh, she's sending me because I don't have any friends. Thank you. I thought the same thing. So I was a sophomore at Loyola School in New York City. It's an independent Jesuit academy on Park Avenue in Manhattan. Beautiful building. Looks like a castle from the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and I wasn't unpopular, but I wasn't particularly popular, you know? Like, I didn't have friends, and I didn't have them for two reasons. Number one, I didn't know how to make friends. Like, once you got past, like, when you're a little kid school, you just drop next to someone, and they're your friend now. That's it. Uh, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to, to talk to other people and become their friends. And then on top of that... I'm not good at asking for help. I'm still not as horrible at it back then. Whenever I need to ask for help, like a little voice would just pop in my head, just like, bing, like, you don't know how to do that? Everyone knows how to do that. If you ask for help, they'll know you're an idiot. So I didn't try to make friends. I can't do it. And my mom is really concerned at this point because, you know, she's a mom and a very good one. All right? That's why I didn't call her a bitch before. Um, <clears throat> And uh, she had started calling other boys from my class to ask them to hang out with me. Not their mothers. I want to clarify, she called them and just be like, hang out. And she had great taste. They were real great guys. 
like, we weren't, uh, this just didn't pan out, but it was very kind of her. Uh, and I remember we're arguing about going to Spain. And I remember she said, like, well, what plans do you have on spring break? And I was like, I have plans. I got four Blockbuster gift cards from Christmas I have not used yet. And the guy at our Blockbuster does not card for R-rated movies, so I'm going to rent Dark City, the 1998 sci-fi masterpiece. Thank you. Kiefer Sutherland, Jennifer Connelly. By the way, if you don't ever go to Spain, but you do watch Dark City, you have gotten a cultural experience. <laughs> my mom's a social worker, and before she gets mad at us, like when she, before my sister and I, before she really like yells at us, she will try to reason with us, much the way she does with her clients. And I remember she just looked at me and goes, well, don't you want to have friends? You can't argue with that. I mean, everyone wants to have friends. Nobody doesn't want to have friends. You might not want to make them. Uh, so I said the meanest thing I could, which was, ugh. I slammed my door, boom, just close it. Uh, and I'm going to Spain. Fine, mom. <laughs> I'm at school on Monday, and I have to find a roommate for this trip to Spain. And again, I don't have any friends, so I don't know who I should room with. I know who I don't want to room with. I know that. Kristoff. Oh, I don't want to room with him. I've hated him since I met him freshman year, all right? You know why I hated him? You know what he did? He wanted to be my friend. Like an idiot. All right? He was like, he looked like, like a high school George Costanza, just like a short, stocky, balding guy. Uh, and this big grin on his face. He'd ask me questions on Monday morning like, how was your weekend? <laughs> Fine. He'd be hanging out in the cafeteria, strumming on his acoustic guitar. He'd be like, hey, do you like music? Yeah. I'm a high school student. Of course I like music. I have the soundtrack to Dark City on my disc, man. Of course I like music. Now, at this point, you're probably like, hey, boy, you sure spent a lot of time around this guy you didn't want to be friends with. Well, thanks, Mom. I know that. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> so I know my options are Kristoff or Alex and Eric. Now, Alex and Eric, like, they really don't even matter much to the rest of the story. Imagine, like, the villain from an 80s teen movie's two sidekicks. It's those guys. Uh, I really didn't like them. I, hate, I thought they were bad people. But they didn't want to be my friend. I knew that. So, boom, I'm rooming with Alex and Eric, and I'm going to Spain. And so I go to Spain, and it was an amazing trip. If you've uh, never gone, go. It's, you know, the greens are more green, the golds are more gold, the shittiest looking building in Spain looks way better than like the best building in the United States of America. Uh, I saw like the best art in the world in Madrid. I saw a sword get made. It was Holy Week, which is a huge festival there. Didn't make friends, mom, okay? I did not do that. You're not gonna make friends, but I had a great time. It's about like the last day or two in Spain. We're in Barcelona. And we've all been sent to just go get lunch on your own. I guess the teachers just needed a minute. And <clears throat> geniuses that we were, we're in Europe, we're high school students. Culture at our fingertips. Uh, we're in like some back corner and back street of Barcelona in the shittiest looking diner I've ever been in in my life. It's like someone came there and was like, I want to make a greasy spoon like in America. And they're like, all right. And they just dumped the shittiest place on earth. It's just horrible. And I'm sitting there next to Christoph. And he says, he's like, hey, when we get back to the States, we should hang out some more. I'm like, yeah, we get back to the States. We're from the States. We don't say the States. They say the States. Leave it alone. <laughs> I order 
un hamburguesa, which for those of you is hamburger in Spanish. And they bring it. And I look at it. And it's like, it's more ham than burger. It's not a burguesa at all. It's a patty of ham, like pink ham that has been grilled and charred to look like a hamburger. I guess they got the exact translation. I take a bite out of it and it's like salty. It's nuclear pink. It's the worst thing I've ever eaten the entirety of because I'm a high school student and I will eat whatever you put in front of me. Also, I want to get the hell away from Kristoff. Finish the burger, boom, out the door to meet up with the rest of the group because we are going to go tour uh, or go walk down Las Ramblas. Wonderful, beautiful tourist destination in Barcelona that I mispronounced. (laughs) And I'm gone. I move to sort of the middle of the pack of the students, get away from Kristoff. And that's when it happens. Oh. Un hamburguesa no es bueno. Ooh. It wants out. It wants out right now. All right. Take a deep breath. Just keep walking. Keep walking. All right. We're good. I'm not throwing up today. Not throwing up today. You will not throw up in front of 20 other boys and girls. And I'm good for a while. Until it happens again. Oh, it wants out. And it does not want out the way it came in. It's too low now. It's gone too far. It wants out. Oh, I gotta take a shit. I gotta take a dump more than I ever have in my life. All right, well, let's just... There's Mr. Linus. Let's just ask him for help. Bing! That's the voice in the head. You can't ask for help. What do you mean I can't ask for help? I have to go to the bathroom. You're gonna go in front of 20 other boys and girls and just say, hey, can we stop? I have to go to the bathroom. We're we're out in public. We're near a residential neighborhood. Do you see a bathroom anywhere around here? Well, I have to go. You have to hold it. I can't hold it. I had a bedwetting problem. You're 15 years old. You haven't wet the bed in six months, okay? Let it go. Hold it. I will not hold it. You shut up. No, you shut up. You hold Oh, it just happened. I have just shit my pants. I have just shit my pants. I am in Spain. I am with other students from high school. I am wearing tan khaki pants, and I have just shit. It's all right, though. Take a deep breath. Okay. It's just a little turtle head in there, man. What are we going to do? Just don't move. Uh, you know, the voice in my head that said, uh, that, that interrupted me whenever I asked for help has apparently just quit and joined another body at this point. <laughs> I'm just like, all right, just stand here, just stand here. Hey, Brennan, get a move on, we gotta go. Yeah, I'm just looking at this uh, traffic light, it looks very interesting. Come on, we gotta go. I, okay. And I take a step. <laughs> and I take another step. <laughs> shit everywhere. It's gone past the turtle head. It's all the shit that's ever been in my body. Just warm and wet and slimy and on my legs and every fucking where. And I just kept walking just like, oh, just just pretend this isn't happening. In Dark City, they would have stopped time. Gone in and changed all their memories. Maybe that could still happen. You don't know. The entire group of students stopped to look at a fountain. So far, no one's noticed. And I start to think, maybe I'm getting away with this, you know? 
and then it happens. Ugh. It smells like shit over here, like a virus. It just went through all the other 20, again, boys and girls. Just, oh, God, ugh. Yeah, it smells like shit. So, someone take a dump. Even Mr. Linus looked at me at one point and just goes, it smells like a burnt cigar over here. And I responded with, ah, Zephyr. But no one seemed to call me out on it. And this is high school, right? I've seen movies. In high school, everyone's mean to each other, right? They have to have known, but no one said anything. So I think maybe they just think it's the shittiness of Philadelphia, or what am I, Philadelphia? Barcelona. Shittiness of Barcelona. The Philadelphia of Spain. Uh, uh, you know, like maybe it's just, they just think that's a smell. And nothing's, nothing's saying, I get back to the hotel. I've gotten away with this. Until I get to my hotel room door. I pull my key out to open it, and it's locked from the inside. If it's locked from the inside, that means Alex and Eric are inside, and they have bolted the door. Could have bolted it for any number of reasons, right? And I hear a voice behind me. Did they lock you out? They said they would. I turned around. It's Jenny. Jenny's a name I made up because I don't remember the name of the girl, but just imagine a Jenny that you hate. <laughs> and I go, yeah, they locked me out. She's like, they said they would. <laughs> Boom, to her room. I look up and down the hall. Every door is closed. Everyone, teachers, students, they're just gone. And I'm like, they know, of course they know. And I look down at my pants, yeah, they know. And I never felt more alone in my life. And then I hear a voice over my shoulder. Hey, man. And I turn around, and it's Kristoff. And he goes, I got an extra pair of pants. You can use the shower in my hotel room. I think to myself, wow, this guy really wants to be my friend. <laughs> More than anything in the world, clearly. So I went to his room. His acoustic guitar was there. He had brought plastic bags, presumably in case a potential friend shat his pants on the trip and he wanted to help him out. We disposed of the evidence. We went to dinner. No one in the class looked at me. I looked at Kristoff and just said, so what kind of music do you like? Here's the thing, again, it never really came up. And my best guess is maybe as much as everyone knew it happened, it was just the most horrible thing, and maybe the, the perspective of being away from America, every one of these high school students from America were like, well, I'm just glad that didn't happen to me. If I call it out, I have to live with it. Uh, it never came up, really, again, I kind of forgot about it when I went back to school. Uh, you know, only remembering it, like when I saw Bridesmaids, I was like, ooh, uh, I remember that. Uh, <laughs> It just didn't really come up in my life again. Until September 13th, 2015. My wedding day. Don't worry. My best man comes up to me. He just goes, hey, I'm almost done with the uh, best man toast. Oh, great. Question, do you think the crowd would like the story about the time you ate an hamburger in Spain and shat your pants? And I looked at my best man and I said, Christoph, I don't think that's the right time for this story. Apparently this was. Thank you very much, everyone.
right. That was super fun. <laughs> okay, great. I want to bring up our next storyteller to the stage. She is doing something really remarkable that you should check out. It's called the Evans Family Lego Project. Uh, Christy uh, suffers from something called Ehlers-Danlos Disorder, and in order to bring attention to it, she and her family are creating a massive city out of Legos. Uh, right now it's in their house, but it's become too big, and they're going to have to move it to another space soon. But check it out. It's called the Evans Family Lego Project. Super cool. And I'm pretty sure Christie's never shared a story on stage before. So this is a trip. This is a trip. Please give a very warm welcome to Christy Evans. Hi. I am completely new at this, so try to take it easy on me. <laughs> um, thank you. My name is Christy. I'm 34. I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, as he was explaining, which basically means that all of my joints dislocate all of the time. So I will try to hold it together, literally, for this. Um, right now, I am a stay-at-home mom. I've got a five-year-old son, and I am pretty much his manager. I deal with his YouTube page and his Instagram and... Uh, dealing with the Lego project. So that's what I'm doing now. But before I got diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, I was a police officer. I was a police officer in Florida. I come from a long line of first responders. My dad worked for the fire department for like 19 years. My brother is a captain at the fire department. So I kind of knew what to expect when I was getting into law enforcement. I mean, I knew that, you know, you're going to deal with a lot of blood and guts and gore and, you know, crazy calls. And But Florida is kind of another breed of crazy. <laughs> I'm sure that you have noticed when you watch the news or you hear a crazy story on the radio that any time something really out there happens, it probably happened in Florida. So, I mean, you know, you've got that story with the, the homeless guy in Miami that got his face eaten off by someone else, and um, you hear about alligators eating golfers, and, I mean, just, just crazy stuff. So, you know, we had a few sayings when I was down there, and uh, you hear things about Florida like it's the home of the newlywed and nearly dead, or, uh, you know, you, you, uh, it's God's waiting room, which is pretty accurate. Um, in, in law enforcement, we had a favorite one, which was uh, you come down on vacation and go home on probation. <laughs> so, yeah, so 2005, I graduated from the police academy. Like I said, I kind of knew what to expect, but I was really eager and excited. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, one of the calls that I went on very early in my career. So um, they have this saying, I'm sure you've probably heard it, it doesn't just apply to law enforcement, but, you know, that shit rolls downhill. And uh, that's, that's how we explain Florida, basically. That's how I've kind of come to figure that all of the crazy ends up down there. You get all these seniors that move down there that are retiring, that are there for the nice weather, and you get all of the crazy transplants that move down there. And sometimes you get people that are a little bit of both, which I can definitely attest to, having been a cop there for a while. It's crazy. So I started in, uh, I got hired at Charlotte County Sheriff's Office, about halfway down on the left coast, on the left side of the state. When I was in the academy, we had a, a, a guy that was a senior. He had horrible dementia, and he hadn't driven in years. And he apparently somehow got the keys to a car, got behind the wheel, and was driving along when he hit a pedestrian. And he just kept driving. 
And this, this dead guy is hanging through the windshield of his car, and he went eight miles with a body hanging through his windshield. And it, it was Halloween, which I guess was a good day for that kind of thing to happen. So he, he pulls up to the toll booth, which is right in front of where our academy is. Yeah, and the toll booth operator looks out, and I can only imagine what he was thinking when he saw this body through the car. At first he said it, he thought it was a gag, you know, a Halloween trick and, until he saw the blood. So, you know, that is the kind of crazy that, that I was trying to gear myself up for. So when you get hired and you start as a new police officer, they don't just throw you out there. They send you through this thing called the FTO program. It's the Field Training Officer. So you're assigned to another, an officer that basically tells you what to do. When you first start the first phase, you just go in, show up, and follow somebody else around all day and try to see how to do this job. And as you progress through each stage, they follow what you're doing and they uh, write up reports on how well you're doing your job and then if you do well you get passed on to the next one and by the time you get to the fourth phase you are pretty much doing everything and an officer is there to make sure that you don't fuck up royally so that's where I'm at when this story starts I'm in the fourth phase of FTO I'm only a few weeks from going out on my own and I'm just kind of starting to get my confidence so I gotta explain who my FTO was because that kind of puts the this whole thing together. I was assigned to this really grumpy old white guy and it was definitely a good old, old boys organization and he was definitely one of the good old boys. I mean, he wore, you know, like alligator cowboy boots to work every day. We didn't get along real well and so I was kind of always on edge when I was with this guy and I was a little bit nervous and um, we had gotten into a fight in his patrol car about four days before this story took place. So I was really on edge because I didn't know when he wrote up my final uh, report whether I was going to still have a job or not. So we get dispatched first thing in the morning to a late reported burglary. Uh, basically what that means is that somebody came home, found out that their shit had been taken, and then they called us later. Or like, you know, if they were out of town and something happened and they returned home. Basically the burglar's not still in the place, you know. So... We're pulling up to this late reported burglary and my FTO looks at me and he says, you know, this is pretty easy. I think you've got it. So you go take care of the call and I'm going to write up your review, your evaluation. So of course now I'm twice as nervous and I'm running through the checklist of what it is that I have to do on this call. I'm thinking to myself, you know, do I have my fingerprint kit? Do I have the witness statement for everything that I need to do when I get inside? And I'm walking up to the door of the apartment and I'm running through this checklist and I'm kind of looking at my boots and just walking to the door. And right about that moment, I look down and I realize that there is blood everywhere. I mean, a massive, massive pool of blood is just everywhere. Footprints all through it. And my heart stops. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> this is not a late reported burglary. And before I can finish my thought and what happened, I hear the door start to open. So, of course, like my training kicks in and I pull my weapon out and I point it and this guy opens the door and he was very surprised because apparently there had been a burglary and he was the victim. So he probably wasn't expecting to be met at gunpoint. But, uh, you know, to be fair, there was a lot of blood and I didn't know if somebody had just been stabbed or shot or what. So at this point, my FTO who's sitting in the car looks up and sees me standing there with this guy at gunpoint. 
And I can only imagine what he was thinking, probably that I had just lost my mind. So he jumps out of the car and comes running over and joins me. And we have to sort out what the heck's going on. And the guy staring down the business end of my gun is like, "Uh, no, I really am the victim. He said, I came home last night and somebody had broken into my place. And uh, so we go inside the apartment and get things sorted out. Sure enough, the back window had been jimmied open and it looked like somebody had crawled in fallen when they came in the window onto an aquarium that was on the floor. And that's where the blood trail starts. So there is like arterial spray on the walls. There is pools of congealed blood everywhere from the back of that apartment where the person came through the window all the way through the living room, down the hallway and back to the front door. And near the front door there is, I mean, I have been since then on scenes of like double homicides that had less blood than there was on this scene. It was really very bloody. Uh, All you could smell in the room was the copper and the guy must have seen the look on my face because all I could think about was if I came home at midnight and found my house with that much blood in it, I don't think that my first instinct would have been to go to bed. (laughs) Maybe that's just me. So the guy is looking at me and he had been explaining what his theory was. And uh, you know, at that point he sees this look on my face and he's like, oh, you're probably wondering why I didn't call. Yeah, dude, just a little. (sighs) That's exactly what I was thinking. So he says, well, the thing is, when I looked around the apartment, I realized nothing had been taken. He's like, I looked around and I figured they came in, they fell, they hurt themselves, they decided to leave and they didn't actually take anything. So the guy was like, you know, I figured I'd just call you in the morning. And I'm like, okay, again, that much blood, not my thing, but you know, if you could go to sleep, fine. So the guy called us, it's eight o'clock in the morning. So I'm like, you know, we're wrapping up. We got all the information from him. And I head outside back to my car. And uh, at this point, I bump into his neighbors. And his neighbors are like, oh, yeah, are you here because of all the blood? I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's part of why we're here. And he's like, I said, so did you see anything? Did you hear anything, you know, anything? And he's like, oh, well, at 5 o'clock this morning when we got up to go to work, my wife and I, we saw the blood everywhere. <laughs> and I'm like, okay and you didn't call anybody (laughs) you didn't think that there was any i said do you like your neighbor he's like oh yeah great guy takes our trash cans out for us all the time really nice and i'm thinking to myself this blood did not concern you in the slightest and the guy looks at me and he goes well you know around here we mind our own business (laughs) and that was when i knew i was in florida So I'm like, you know, we're basically wrapping things up at that point and we're getting ready to head out. And where I'm standing outside the front door, I look down and I realize there's the blood and the bloody footprints, but there's actually a trail of blood leading out into the parking lot. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm not a detective, but I think I'm going to follow that trail and see if I can figure out where this guy went. So I start walking across the parking lot and following the blood drips. And I notice out in the distance that there is really tall grass. And now all I can think is... Great. This dead guy is going to be in that grass, and I am going to spend the rest of my day in the 100-degree sun with 100% humidity in long sleeves and polyester and a bulletproof vest, babysitting a dead guy in the grass. So I'm walking towards the grass, and as I get over there and I'm bracing myself, I look up, 
And I realized that on the other side of this tall grass is another set of apartment buildings that looks just like the victim's apartment behind me. And as I'm looking at it, I notice that the third door down, which is white, has bloody handprints all over it. <laughs> now again, I'm pretty new at this, but I, you know, there's a, there's a pretty good chance that that's where our guy went. So I get my FTO and I'm like, come on, you know, I solved the crime, let's go get him. We make our way over to the apartment and um, start knocking on the door, there's no response, and I'm, again, I'm thinking, this guy's probably dead. I mean, that's a lot of blood. So I'm not really expecting anybody to answer the door. We, uh, we get there, when I'm looking through the window and I can see that as much blood as there was in the first apartment, there's even more in the second apartment. I mean, pools of blood congealed everywhere. His, whoever this was that came in had shedded his socks, his shoes, his shirt, on the way in the door, and every one of them is just brown and crusty and just there's... You can see the spray on the white walls down the hallway. And the, the blood trail disappears around the corner where I can't see anymore. So we start looking through the other windows, trying to see if we can find this guy. And uh, I go around the corner, and I realize that if I peer in up on my tiptoes, I can see into the bedroom, and that was where he ended up. So sitting there on the, well, laying there on the bed, face down, is our burglar. And he's not moving. So um, I'm knocking on the window, and I'm like, okay. You know, again, pretty good idea that this guy's not alive. But I'm looking real hard, trying to see if he's breathing or moving at all, and he's not. So I took out my, my mag light, and I'm knocking on the window, and no response. And finally, my FTO says to me, let's, let's call the fire department and get them to take the door down so that we can get in there. So we make our way to the, back towards the front of the apartment, and he's talking on the phone, and he's got his back to me, and he's talking to our supervisor and describing the scene and everything that we found. And at this moment, I'm looking still through the window towards where the guy is. And at that very moment, the dead guy sits up. <laughs> and now my face must have gone super white. I mean, I'm already white, but super white. And my FTO, who's got his back to me, turns around in time to catch my face at having seen this. And he says to the guy on the phone that he's talking to, oh man, I gotta go. My rookie looks like she's gonna puke. I gotta go before I gotta call an ambulance for her. So I can't say anything. I I'm seeing this guy and his head is filleted open. I can see his skull. And I'm, I'm not comprehending how this person just sat up, but I, I can't get any words to come to my mouth. I'm like, trying really hard and nothing's coming out and my FTO just the more worked up I get the funnier he thinks it is and he's he's just laughing he's like you need to go sit in the shade before you pass out he's like you know he thinks this is hilarious so uh that's about the moment when the dead guy opens the door <laughs> and my FTO dropped his phone which smashed into a million pieces which was funny to me but I tried not to laugh and uh my FTO was like oh because like I said the guy's head open and I can see his skull and he's not actively bleeding anymore because I, I don't think he's got any blood left at this point <laughs> I really just am not comprehending how he's standing there but the guy opens the door and the first thing he says is have you seen my bicycle I think I think I lost my bike and I'm like dude yeah you got some bigger problems and you're missing bicycle sit down so the EMTs responded in the fire truck gets there and they thought that they were breaking down a door to get to a dead guy so they were just as surprised well maybe a little less surprised than we were 
But they were surprised when they got there and they found this guy in horrible condition and they get him all loaded up in the ambulance and one of the EMTs walks over to me and he says to me, so uh, yeah, did you notice that his eye was missing? And I'm like, nope, didn't look that close. So he's like, yeah, could you uh, go back to the apartment and see if you could find it? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll go back and see if I can find it, but I'm not bringing it back. It's where I draw the line. I'm like, I did not sign up for this. So I walk back across the parking lot and go over to the victim, and he opens the door, and he's really kind of surprised. He's like, hey, did you find the guy? I said, yeah, we did, we found him. I said, and he's, he's actually alive, believe it or not. And uh, the guy says, well, did, did you find out? Did he take anything? I said, no, but we think he left something. <laughs> So that was when I broke it to him that I needed to go look around his apartment for the eyeball. And I did. And I found it, too. It was in the aquarium. (laughs) Pretty good. So anyway, it was pretty much an open and shut case. I mean, it was nice. We had our bad guy. You know, we found him. It was, there, was, there was nothing to solve. The guy had had a pretty healthy dose of karma, so it was probably my guess that if he survived the ordeal that he would probably not be burglarizing too many more places, or at least, you know, he'd be doing it with one eye. And uh, my FTO was not mad at me anymore. He'd forgotten completely about the fight that we'd had, and now he was, like, showing me off to everyone that we worked with. He was like, you gotta hear this story. It's hilarious and disgusting. And it, and it prepared me. I mean, the nice thing about having something like that happen so early on in your career is that it prepared me for the things that happen later. Like the car accident that I was on, it was a, a really bad crash, a rollover. Five people had been ejected from the vehicle. One person had been killed and one was trapped in the crushed van. And as I'm down there on the ground trying to make contact with the person that's in the crushed vehicle to see if they're still alive, I'm down there on my hands and knees with the flashlight and I'm, I'm yelling to the lady, Are you, is anybody okay? Can you hear me? And uh, somebody taps me on the shoulder. And I'm a little busy. So I'm like, hello, are you in there? Are you all right? And I get tapped on the shoulder again and I turn around and this woman hands me an arm. Yeah, that's a whole nother story though. But anyway, so this, this burglary kind of prepared me for those moments in my career. And it was great because I had a, a story to tell that most of the veterans you know. I mean, they'd seen a lot of crazy shit too, but probably not quite that. It was nice because there's a lot of sayings in law enforcement. There's a lot of like advice that gets passed on from the people that have been doing it for a while to the, to the new rookies. And one of the things that I heard a lot was, you know, law enforcement is 98% boredom and 2% sheer terror. And so if you can just kind of make it through that, you know, if you know what to expect, you'll probably do all right in this career. But I have to say that most of them had probably not had a conversation with a dead guy before breakfast. Anyway, thank you guys so much. Christy Evans! (laughs) So I believe we've had poop, blood, an eyeball, and an arm so far tonight. Uh, What might be next? It's a very messy evening. Um... I want to bring our next storyteller. He has been on the show a couple of times now. 
I think we did a radio story once, and we definitely did a live story in New York once, or maybe in Pittsburgh. He tours for the Moth main stage now, and he has a, a podcast called Two Gays, No Girls at a Pizza Place. Uh, I did it, and we, we because of my bizarre eating uh, rituals, we, we had to have raw vegan pizza, which was horrible. As you might have guessed. Uh, please welcome to the stage David Montgomery! He was not kidding. It was fucking terrible pizza. <laughs> Hi, everybody. How are you doing? Um, so I just realized Father's Day is right around the corner, and Father's Day has never really meant a whole, whole lot to me. I'm not a father myself. Um, on paper, it kind of looks like I have daddy issues. I remember vaguely inappropriate things happening when I was a kid. Um, thankfully, I was not overtly molested or anything like that. And before your thank you, and before your mind, before your mind even goes there, not getting molested does not make me feel unpretty or anything like that. Um, I totally could have gotten molested if I wanted to. Um, but my dad, uh, my dad was not a really good guy. He had a drinking problem and a hitting problem, and a yelling problem, and a having sex with people he definitely shouldn't problem. Um, and we left him when I was pretty young. Uh, my mother, despite doing the right thing, you know, in the broad stroke there, she was kind of off the leash for a while, so she wasn't really such a great parent herself for a while. And my concrete memories of when they were together would be like me in bed, covering my ears with a pillow so I wouldn't have to hear the yelling happening downstairs. Now. The yelling was like my dad coming home wasted drunk, beating the hell out of my mom, raping her or one of my siblings or any combination of that wonderful laundry list. Um, whenever we first left him, I think I was probably about five years old. I was in kindergarten and uh, my dad went out for a pack of smokes, that old chestnut. Um, and my, instead of him leaving, my mom came and took all seven of us kids into the kitchen. She had each one of us a grocery store bag. And she said, all right, we have two minutes. Go upstairs, pack every single thing you need in the world into this bag, and meet me down here. We're going to run up the street and live at my friend Janet's house. Now, Janet and her two sons didn't exactly live in a house, per se. They lived in a really tiny two-bedroom apartment. And they were about to get eight house guests for the upcoming year or two. It was very comfy. Um, but so uh, we moved in with Janet, and I, it wasn't great, if you can even imagine that. It was not a super fun time. Now, um, I was in kindergarten, so whenever she told me to pack everything I own, uh, it included the following items in that grocery store bag. A pillow, uh, stuffed animal Miss Piggy, Kermit the Frog, end of list. <laughs> And so my dad had partial custody. We'd see him on the weekends, and he would take us on, like, the coolest imaginable field trips, so we'd favor him over my mom as the cool parent. Uh, we'd go to, like, the duck pond and the movies and my personal favorite, his AA meetings. No, they were awesome. It was so great. We used to just get to run around this bar that was closed down one night a week because I come from a town so ass-backwards that they have AA meetings at a bar. And so uh, I'd get to play pinball and Pac-Man and the jukebox, and then we'd go home to his house, 
because he lived alone in the house that I grew up in. That makes sense. Uh, so that happens, and uh, I get to have my own room, and I get to stay up late, and I get to watch TV, and it was awesome for me then. Now, we were filthy, dirty little kids. We were those kids in the neighborhood. Uh, we had head lice constantly. If you could, as I'm scratching my head, um, <laughs> totally fine now. But uh, if you can imagine like a super gay version of Pigpen from Charlie Brown, that mostly sums up what I was like as a child. And uh, this was around the time, uh, well, I was in second grade and my teacher was giving us a spelling test and she stopped at my desk and she looked down and said, David, honey, when's the last time you had a bath? And I couldn't remember. And long story short there, we started getting these surprise inspections from the health department. I called them raids. I felt like I was Anne Frank or something. <laughs> but instead of like the Nazis killing us, they would take us away to a much better life. But uh, this was around the time my mom met the man who would eventually become my stepfather. Um, he was not abusive, but he was an alcoholic and he did bring drugs into the house. So she definitely had a type. Um, he was a real stand-up guy, like a youngish, single guy, no kids, playing house with a little old woman that lived in a shoe and her little village of children. It was, it was kind of admirable. And he didn't work for like the first 10 years of their relationship, but my mom really liked him. And the only time he ever laid a finger on us was me, one time, just one time. It was the late 80s, so I loved Ghostbusters. And I loved them like too much. I was like obsessed with them. And he decided he would make fun of me for that, like the way someone that's seven years old would do, not the way an adult man would talk to a child. So uh, I knew I couldn't overpower him or anything like that. So I used the power of my words and I very ironically said to him, shut up, you faggot. <laughs> I realized even then, like, come on, David, really? Uh, he beat the hell out of me that day. My mom like averted her sad, powerless glance and we moved on with things. Um, but like things didn't exactly improve for a long time uh, with the neglect situation, all that stuff. And before I know it, I'm in like middle school and high school and I'm seeing the people around me slowly becoming the terrible adults that were in this town. One of, another one of my friends had gotten pregnant and she was like 14 or 15 years old. And I had this like moment with her, I said, what are you going to do after you have the baby? And she goes, I don't know. I hope I get a job at the dollar store in a year or two where my mom works. And at that moment, I go, these are not my people. I can't be like these people. So I start thinking, like, if I stayed in this town, if I did the same thing that everybody else did and just, like, went with the flow, I saw myself, like, as a gay person, here's the way it's going to go. I'm going to get progressively sadder and lonelier and turn to drugs and then elicit sex with strangers and then harder drugs. And, like, as hot as all of this sounds, um, <laughs> it doesn't work the same way in a small town. I pictured, like, in reality what would happen is uh, I'd be, like, that super skinny, weird guy in town that never got married and everybody whispered about him. They weren't sure. And then he got even skinnier and then he died. Oh, and I started, I got a picture of like a very gaunt, sickly boy George in my head <laughs> dying in a hospital bed. And I said, I do not want this life. And I started researching colleges that very day. So I did really well throughout school because I wanted to get the hell out of there. So I became the first kid in my family to graduate from high school. The only one to move on to college. Uh, thank you very much. Um, 
I was the only one to move on to college, and I decided I would go to school for elementary education because I was already used to being poor. Um, <laughs> and I, I paid my own way through school the only way that I knew how, by working minimum wage and feeding a debilitating addiction to student loan debt. I needed to get through this. So I ended up doing my student teaching at this tiny, weird little private school. And the lady that I student taught with was kind of insane. She was this miserable old woman. She hated kids, and she was very vocal about that. I can't stand children. I'm like, you know you teach third grade, right? And I was beside myself uh, before school started, like a day or two before the kids arrived. And I felt like this need to become the change that I want to see in the world. I felt like I was going to be like a father to these kids in some way, and I needed to do a good job. I couldn't fail them the way that my parents had failed me. So I'm sitting there thinking about how I'm going to do this. I'm so worried. And she saw this, and this woman of very few words came over and patted me on the shoulder two times, technically consoling me. And, uh, and she said, David, you're fine. Just remember try to be a good example. The children are always watching. And then she like stormed away. And I was like, that wasn't that inspiring, but I'll take it. So, um, so she ends up, um, you know, I, I use this little bit of what I've been given and I decide I'm like, I'm probably not going to get a whole lot more guidance than those 10 or 15 words. So I'm gonna make up my own set of rules of like how to be that good example, how to be that change I wanna see in the world. My first rule out of all of them was to be calm. If a kid is having like an emotional meltdown, it's because they're stressed out and it doesn't make sense to get angry at them. That's like trying to get rid of diarrhea by eating a burrito and washing it down with a latte. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Um, my, my second rule, um, try not to swear. I feel like that kind of goes without saying when you work with children, but um, it's actually, it takes a lot of patience and practice and skill to become the guy that was practically raised by pirates and now stubs his toe and says, oh, gosh darn it, oh, fudge, I've really hurt myself. <laughs> the third rule is to smile. Um, no matter what, you have to make life look like a toothpaste commercial in front of kids. I had a little girl that got head lice, and it was the first of the worst outbreak we've ever had in this weird little school. And I, and every time I say that, I start scratching my head. <laughs> Do you guys have that right now? Um, but so I felt so sorry for this little girl. She's waiting for her mom to pick her up, and she's sitting outside the office crying her little eyes out. And I just saw little me sitting there. And I, her parents are wonderful people, so I knew she was going to get taken care of whenever she goes home. But uh, in the moment, I needed to make her smile. So I tell her a little joke, and I goof off with her, and she's laughing, and then Mom comes in, and everything's fine. Next morning, she comes in, and she's sad again, and the kids are keeping their distance. Some of the grown-ups are keeping their distance. So I make it my duty. I scoop her up, and I go, Hey, everybody, look who's back! And all of the kids did a big, gigantic group hug on her. And I said, I made this happen, everybody. I was really happy about that. Um, the fourth rule is... Um, don't show favoritism. And this one is particularly difficult because some kids fucking suck. <laughs> so this school I've mentioned is a very weird, tiny, private, liberal, quirky place. Um, you develop these really awesome relationships with the families that are unlike, you know, the way all of us were with our first grade teacher. Um, 
Like you go over for dinner, uh, you go out and have a beer with dad, you have coffee with mom, you babysit the kids sometimes. Like it's, I, I've never gotten a gift that had an apple on it, is basically what I'm saying. Uh, they really get to know you really well. And uh, working with kids was sort of my way around the fact that I'm probably not going to have kids. I'm like, as a single gay guy who's not getting any younger, despite what my Botox guy always tells me, um, it's probably not going to happen. And I've made peace with that. It's fine. But I still, like, that fantasy in my mind will never die of, like, you know, getting to be that dad in a kid's life. And I always envision what, like, my perfect son or daughter would be like. I just want them to be, like, I'm not picky. Just, like, funny, cool kid who doesn't have to try too hard. And... (laughs) That's all I want. Every now and then a kid shows up at school that has that, like, that spark, that, like, magic inside of them. And that fatherly instinct in me starts to kick in. And uh, I call it social adoption that I started doing. I sort of, like, picture... It sounds weird, I know. But uh, I sort of picture in my mind, like, oh, that's almost like my kid. That's exactly what I want them to be like. And before long, you know, I tried my hardest to to space these things out because whenever you socially adopt a bunch of kids, it starts to look a little bit weird when they're all in the same place at the same time. Thankfully, all the families are totally on board with this system that I've developed. But uh, at one point, uh, a few years ago, my fake family was growing very rapidly. And uh, I had a kid that I socially adopted, my fake son, when he was four, he's now 15. Um, and he, his name is Theo, he's the greatest kid in the world. Uh, I had a second grade daughter who was my heart and soul, and I had a kindergarten boy who makes his real parents buy him Adidas shoes so he can be like me. <laughs> and call me crazy, but I find that to be so validating. <laughs> But to see in any one of these kids that, like, special quality that you would see in your real child, it's beautiful. I mean, Theo, my oldest, (laughs) he has the sarcastic wit of a much ruder version of me, but he only uses it for good. (laughs) My little daughter, she recently had her real mother help her research the Spice Girls on YouTube after finding out that I liked them. And my little baby in kindergarten, he actively quotes unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt with me. (laughs) My fake family is perfect. All I need now is for Prince to come back from the dead and tell me he's ready to sweep me off my feet. (laughs) So I've had a tradition for a long time now where I take Theo out to lunch on his birthday. And every year as he gets older, I get nervous because he's approaching middle school and that's when they get weird. Um, So I always ask his mom ahead of time. I go, hey... How's my boy doing? Is he too cool yet? And she goes, oh, thank God. He was begging me last night to get a hold of you to see if you were going to take him to lunch. I was like, oh, thank God. I'm still cool in the middle school crowd. Because they are mean, and they can sense uncoolness at the tiniest minute level, and they will magnify it till you're fucking nothing. (laughs) So after he turned 13, I had probably the cutest, sweetest exchange in the world with this child. Um, It was actually the day before my birthday, so it was a few months after his, and he comes into my room in the morning and he says, I wanted to be the first one to wish you a happy birthday and I wanted to know if I could take you to lunch for your birthday. And I like choked back tears and said, my birthday's not till tomorrow, but yes, yes, yes. You're such a good boy. So I went and talked to his mother and I said, oh, you are so sweet to pay for lunch for me. Thank you so much. She goes, oh no, that wasn't our idea. That's Theo's idea. He asked me if he could use some of his bar mitzvah money to take you to lunch. And then I was like, 
I'm such a good fake father. Oh my God. My boy makes me so proud. But uh, I said, oh, oh my God, I will go, but I will not accept his money. I absolutely will not do that. And she goes, we argued for a little bit. And she goes, fine, I am paying, but listen, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I said, okay. And she goes, you've got some work to do. Theo came to me last night and he said, you know what? I don't think Dave loves me anymore. And she asked why, and he said, well, I saw him pick up his second grade daughter and hug her in front of everybody and talk about how great she was. And I said, oh God, you've gotta be kidding me. Now, a quick testament to how wonderful these people are. They don't just tolerate my fake family system. They embrace it. This mom literally consoled her 13-year-old child by saying, honey, you're his firstborn fake son. You could never be replaced. So we went to lunch for my birthday, and I had this little heart-to-heart with him, and I said, Theo, you are turning into the most wonderful young man. I cannot wait to see you as an adult. You make me so proud, but it's bittersweet because you're getting into middle school now, and I always worry that I'm not going to be cool to you anymore. And he goes, David, that's just not possible. And I go, oh yeah, wait till eighth grade graduation when I'm crying my fucking eyes out. And you're sitting here, I'm losing all my cool points I've earned, you know, over the years. And he said to me, it would only make you cooler. Uh, You'd think he would have set off the fire alarm with all the Smokies blowing up my ass at this point. But this kid is so genuine. He's the real deal. He really means that. And it got me thinking got me thinking about my rules, because I had slipped up pretty bad this particular year. My four rules on how to become a good example for kids. I mean, number one, I was definitely calm. I didn't swear very much that year. Um, I smiled, albeit not showing my teeth, because I'm British on my dad's side and white trash on my mom's. (laughs) This is not a great dental situation, I realize it. But it was the fourth rule, don't show favoritism. And I started thinking about it, and my, you know, it goes to show that every single parent in the world that's trying to be a good parent can screw up sometimes. You do the right thing, and it can still turn out bad. And then I thought back to what that miserable old woman told me. Be a good example. The children are always watching. Thank you very much. You know, that reminded me of in the second grade, I had one of my favorite teachers ever, Mrs. Patty Shaw. And I loved her because she would say things to us that were just, I didn't know it at the time because I was a second grader, but then I'd come home and tell my mom things that Mrs. Patty Shaw had said. And it would just be like, no, no, that's not right. And a lot of it was along the lines of, you know, that psychological thing where they say you, you, if you tell a person don't think of a white bear, then they, they, psychologically their brain has to start thinking of a white bear, right? And Mrs. Patty Shaw would do a lot of that kind of stuff with it. I'll never forget this piece of advice she gave to us. She was like, kids, whatever you do, 
Never do this. No matter how tempted you might be to do this, just never do it. Never stick your fingers under the, the bottom of your rib cage and then push your fingers up under the rib cage and then yank it out. <laughs> just a, a room full of children being like, Oh, okay. Like, it would have never occurred. It's probably never occurred to you now. But don't do it, guys. Don't even think about it. Okay. We have one last story tonight. And this one is, as usual, we save our, our heaviest for last. So this one is going to be... It's going to take you somewhere, all right? Now, I don't... It's, it, Pam is new at, on the storytelling scene, but I think she's won some moss around here uh, fairly recently. And she has just been named the story lady for Trax Farm. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what that means. I'm not sure if she knows either. <laughs> But Trax Farm said, you should be here just telling stories. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, it's, it's a real honor to have her on the show for the first time. Please welcome to the stage, Pam Lotta. The most dangerous man I ever met was St. Clair Daniel. The summer of 1987, I was working in the emergency room at St. Thomas Hospital, and St. Clair was brought in on a stretcher held down by leather straps, and he was accompanied by four orderlies and eight policemen. He had been severely beaten, and he was still full of uh, fight and angst. The police told me that he had been at a local convenience store. He was getting ready to exit the store as a tourist was pushing in at the same time. So they had this push-pull thing going back and forth. And St. Clair took this as a sign of aggression and confrontation against him. And so he went into this paranoid, defensive rage. When the police were called and finally got there, it took 10 people to get St. Clair off of the tourist and subdue him enough to time down on the stretcher and bring him into the emergency room. I uh, was a medical graduate. I'd just gotten out of medical school, and I owed a debt to the United States government, the Public Health Service, and I had decided to take duty at St. Thomas Hospital as a staff physician in the emergency room and pay my debt. I was new to the Caribbean and thought that this was, you know, just going to be like a family practice type situation. And if I had ever known I would be meeting St. Clair Daniel, I don't think I would have taken the job. My coworkers were Caribbean, African individuals, and St. Clair was well known to them. He was known for his violent outbursts and his irrational behaviors, and they didn't want to have anything to do with it. They were hoping that the police would just take him to jail. And if I wanted to have blood tests done or do an examination, 
then I had to do it myself. So I went over and I grabbed a phlebotomy tray and a tourniquet and I went and started to tie the tourniquet, the rubber tourniquet around St. Clair's arm. And you know, he's given me the shoulder. He's still fighting his restraints. And I whisper in his ear, if you don't hold still, I'm gonna let you die. Okay, so he, he was very cooperative, and I, <laughs> I got the tubes of blood that I needed, and I also got to examine him and suture his wounds. When the lab tests came back, they were positive for ganja, marijuana, acute alcohol intoxication, and phenylcyclohexylpiperidine. That's more commonly spelled PCP. On the street, PCP is known as angel dust. It is a euphoric drug. It also gives you a sense of invulnerability and uh, grandiose ideas. It also increases your paranoia. The other thing it does is increase physical strength. Uh, St. Clair was admitted through the emergency room upstairs to the psychiatric ward. And I did have responsibility for taking care of some of the psychiatric patients and doing psych evals. And I worked with the chief of psychiatry doing those regimes. St. Clair had a severe disorganized schizophrenia. He had very little formal education. I'm not sure that he could even read or write. He was a very empty, vacuous person. Uh, Freud would say he was someone that lacked an ego and a sense of self. Lehman would say the lights were on but nobody was home. St. Clair very often would just withdraw into himself and listen to auditory hallucinations and he was unreachable, he was almost catatonic. In February 1988, I got to take a two-week vacation and I left. St. Thomas and went back to California. I longed to just drive 80 miles an hour on a straight highway and to go to a well-stocked grocery store and be able to buy anything that I wanted. When I returned to St. Thomas, I found out that St. Clair had been discharged from the hospital. The administration had decided that the overcrowded psychiatric unit needed to be thinned out. And it was a nurse's assessment that St. Clair was stable enough to be out on the street by himself. I was so upset by this, and I just was so frustrated and couldn't do anything about it. I called the East End Mental Health Clinic. They had not heard anything about him or where he was. I called some of the doctor's offices that I knew, and uh, no one had any idea of his whereabouts or his circumstances. And I shared my concerns with the staff in the emergency room, and they said, oh, don't worry about it. You know, he'll have another minor skirmish or an altercation and be brought back in, you know, before you know it. And we can start treating him again. On February 2nd, 1988, I was going upstairs from the emergency room, and an EMT stopped me. And he said, ma'am, did you hear about the murders on the beach this morning? And I said, no, I hadn't heard any, about any murders on the beach. And I said, was it anybody that we knew? And he said, no. And so I just thought, well, it was probably another drug deal gone bad. 
which was an occurrence that happened all too often in St. Thomas. A little later in the morning, I was up in the internal medicine ward, and one of the nurse's aides came up to me, and she said, Mom, did you hear about the murders on the beach this morning? They cut off the doggy's head, and then they cut off the lady's head, and then they cut off the man's head, and oh, there was blood, blood everywhere. And then the Canadian nurse said, it was a real Donnybrook. And this was kind of dramatic, I thought, you know, and so I just said, okay. Well, later on, about one o'clock, I ran into Dr. Wilder, who was chief of the emergency room, and they said, they have arrested St. Clair Daniel for the murders on the beach. There was no doubt in my mind that St. Clair had uh, the ability to do that much violence. It was certainly within his physical stature. He was a very beautiful young man. Maybe someone like Muhammad Ali was when he was very young, you know, very powerfully built, but he was just empty. All the beauty on the outside belied the lack of inner self. He was had been arrested, and for the next few months, he went through the criminal justice system, you know, making many court appearances, and it just kept coming back. Why? Why did this happen? No one seemed to knew, know why. There was lots of rumors and suppositions and theories, but there was really no hard evidence as to what had happened, and St. Clair was not really communicating. As hospital administrations would have it with trickle-down duties, since I had taken care of him when he was in the psychiatric ward, then I had to find out why this crime had been committed. I was not looking forward to seeing St. Clair again. He was a very sad fella, uh, very empty and depressing to be around. But I had to get in the seaplane and fly from St. Thomas over to St. Croix and do an evaluation. I knew it was within my training to do it, and despite it being sort of a daunting task, I went ahead and did my duty. One of the reasons that made it so scary was that uh, the prison was located in St. Croix near Frederickstead, and everyone knew that Frederickstead was not a place for white people or tourists. Pirates of the Caribbean were very much a reality. It was not just a new Hollywood concept that at high noon there were muggings, kidnappings, all sorts of mayhem going on. And so even though you were driving at a high rate of speed with your windows rolled up and the doors locked, you may not make it intact to your destination. So that was a pretty big concern. I went ahead and stayed at the Pink Fancy Hotel the night before I went to interview St. Clair. And it was this beautiful little pink hotel that dated back to the 1780s. In the evenings or at night in the Caribbean, there's a softness in the air with a scent of jasmine, fertile soil, sea salts, maybe a hint of moss. And it was also civilized. You know, I knew that I would be leaving civilization behind just to go see St. Clair in prison. The next morning, bright and early, the taxi did deliver me to the prison. It was a moss rock and concrete edifice that had a lot of uh, wrought iron on it and razor wire and that sort of thing. I had to go through various checkpoints. I went farther and farther into the bowels of the prison. It was very hot and humid. 
but I was absolutely chilled to the bone and the hair on my arm was standing up. I saw St. Clair, he was in a cubicle and he was manacled, had a waist chain around his waist and the handcuffs were locked to that. He was wearing prison garb, the old fashioned black and white striped prison uniform, but his was faded and tattered. And he had shackles all around his feet and he was attached to a D-ring at the floor. I uh, said, hi, St. Clair, do you remember me? There was no response. And I went ahead and sat down across the table from him and I said, I need you to tell me what happened on the beach in St. Thomas. He was evading my answers, you know, he didn't want to, or he wasn't going to answer me, he didn't want to hear my questions. And one of the guards that was standing by the door had either a large flashlight or a truncheon and he went over and he banged him on the arm and the threat of a beating really snapped him to life and he became more cooperative and I was able to finally elicit the story from him. It came in bits and pieces and there was a lot of repeating in making sure that this was what he was actually telling me. But on the morning of March 2nd, 1988, St. Clair was working as landscaper's helper and his duty was to prune a very large hibiscus hedge. And he'd started out early in the morning sharpening his machete, or as he called it, a cutlass. And he had it down to a razor's edge. He thought that it was going to be a hot day, and he decided that he wanted to harvest some coconuts so that he would have coconut water to drink. And he started with his cutlass down the hill. As he neared the end of the road and got closer to the beach, he could hear a dog barking. And St. Clair was afraid of dogs, very afraid. Genevieve Lewis, age 53, and Steve Cornish, age 29, were walking on the beach that morning with their dog. And they were tossing a frisbee for the dog. And the dog was barking in happy anticipation to catching that frisbee. Steve threw the frisbee, and it lodged in the sea grape trees just as St. Clair was entering those trees to get on the beach. St. Clair looked up and he saw the dog running at him and he was barking and he swung his cutlass and he lopped off the dog's head. As you might well imagine, Genevieve Lewis and Steve Cornish were really upset that somebody cut off their dog's head and Steve raised his arms, you know, what the fuck's the matter with you? You know, what's happening? And the cutlass swung again and severed the underarms of both arms, and with his triceps severed, the arms dropped to his side, and he could not defend himself against the powerful roundhouse move, the cutlass swinging again. He was decapitated. Genevieve Lewis just stood frozen in horror, screaming, 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 and St. Clair just said, shut up, shut up, shut up, and the cutlass swung and Genevieve's head was severed. Suddenly it was quiet, and St. Clair sank to the sand amidst the dead bodies. And he proceeded to take his cutlass, and he opened the chest cavity of the dog. He opened Steve's chest cavity. And when he came to Genevieve, he split her through the sternum, chest cavity, and all the way to the pubic bone. 
he proceeded to totally eviscerate her. All of the organs and entrails were laying on the sand, and he was putting his hands through them, searching. And he was looking for a fetus. He thought Genevieve might be pregnant. He was from the island of St. Kitts, and on the island of St. Kitts, there's an old school folklore superstition about jumbies. Everything has a jumbie or has a spirit. And if you kill something, you always check to make sure the heart does not beat after you think it's dead. Because if that heart continues to beat, then the jumbie will haunt you through eternity. Now these aren't the Mako Jumbies, which are very popular in Caribbean carnival parades. Those are men on stilts that are dressed in bright colored costumes and they wear masks and they juggle and they dance. If I had been on St. Kitts and a mosquito bit me, you know, I'd swat it and the mosquito would fall to the ground. But someone from St. Kitts very often, not only would they swat the mosquito, then they would make sure it was really extinguished before it would fall. St. Clair was found guilty of the murders, and they were characterized as a satanic ritual killing. But I could find no evidence of that. St. Clair lived in the moment, and he was ill-equipped to do any long-range planning. The best plan he could come up with was gathering some coconuts for some coconut water. Nonetheless, the United States District Court did convict him of murder and a bru what they characterized a brutal satanic ritual killings, and they sentenced him to life in prison. St. Clair spent the last 28 years in prison. A lot of that time has been in solitary confinement because of his severe disorganized schizophrenia. He misses social cues and doesn't understand what's going on. Recently, he was walking to go to outside recreation, and he was escorted by a female corrections officer. And she said or did something that he did not understand, and he almost killed her. So St. Clair Daniel now is back in the criminal justice system awaiting another trial. Thank you.
is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Lisa Mitchell behind me now, and we just heard from Pam Lada. I'm going to read The Places Risk is coming next on July 8th. We are back in San Francisco. That's going to be a hell of a night. Come on out, San Francisco. On July 27th, we're back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On July 30th, we're at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. Now, on the 5th of August, we are in Toronto. We are in the Great Hall in Toronto. Come on out. We're still taking pitches, too. The theme is disaster. Toronto. So pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Now, we might be doing a Montreal show round about that time as well. So we are taking pitches. We can't confirm the show date yet, but we are taking pitches, Montreal, for the theme myths. So send us your pitches. On August 20th, we are back at the bootleg in L.A., On August 24th, back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Now, if you have ever been interested in doing this whole storytelling thing, we teach it. We make it very easy. We give guidance. You can take one-on-one lessons with me over Skype, or you can download one of our courses, Intro to Storytelling or Storytelling for Business. We have video courses that you can take in your own time at your own pace. We also do corporate workshops for entire staffs and in-person workshops in New York, in Los Angeles, and in Minneapolis. Find out about all of that at thestorystudio.org. Now, as you may know, Risk is listener-supported. We dearly rely on and we dearly, dearly appreciate the financial contributions of those who love what we do. So if you want to give us a little help, go to the Support Us page at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Watch out. Watch for them camouflaged and crouched in the shadows. Though they couldn't hold it, can't fill up to you. And they stand as tall as you in broad daylight too. Oh, oh, oh. Do, ba-da-ba-ba-ba-do. 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 Oh, it wants out, and it does not want out the way it came in. I can't believe I ate that whole thing.